Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Yeah, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to that passage we just read in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. Um, while you're getting there, a uh, question for you, just out of curiosity, how many people in the room have watched at least some of the show Ted Lasso? Quite a few people. Okay. Um, I had a feeling that might be the case. It's a wildly popular show right now. Uh, it's won like all kinds of awards, I think. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big deal right now. I think they just announced they're going to do at least one more season, which I personally am excited about. Uh, we have both like restarted our Apple Plus subscription and canceled it just based on that one show. I have no interest in watching other shows on Apple Plus, but I really like that one. Um, Uh, Ted Lasso, if if you're not familiar, if you haven't seen the show, uh, basically it is about an, an American college football coach from Kansas who is hired to coach an English soccer team in the London area. So there's your humor right there, right? It's your classic like fish out of water uh, story. Uh, Think of him like a a slightly more likable Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights, if you saw that movie. Uh, Has a little bit of that vibe to it. Um, But in the show, I, I think a lot of the appeal to the show itself is actually because of Ted Lasso, the main character, played by Jason Sudeikis. Uh, If you've watched it, he has this undeniable charm and positivity and warmness to his character. Uh, Even when he's faced with seemingly impossible scenarios at nearly every turn, even when people are like actively rooting against him in most every way or wanting him to fail, it seems like even in those moments, his response to those people almost all of the time is just this unquantified kindness to them. But there's this moment at the end of season one where we find out part of why he's like this. Now, don't get nervous. I'm not about to spoil anything significant at all. I would never do that to you. Uh, But he reveals in this one scene why he acts like that towards people, or at least part of why. He says in that episode that one of his life mottos, one of Ted Lasso's life mottos, is when it comes to relationships with other people, to always be curious and never judgmental. He says that he saw that quote at his kid's school at one point, and it just stuck with him. So when Ted Lasso in the show comes across people who are different than him, in most every way, or, or even people who are cruel and awful towards him at every turn, apparently Ted Lasso does not first ask the question, how do I distance myself from this person? Or even how do I get back at them? Or how do I get even with them? Or how do I write them off? Evidently, when he sees somebody who's different than him or opposes him, his first question is to think, man, I sure would love to know more about why they're like that. I want to know more about that person's story and and what makes them think that way or act that way or treat people that way. He thinks to himself, 
man, there must be a fascinating backstory there. I wonder what it is. I sure would love to find out. And I think that's part of what makes the show so compelling to so many people. I think at a time in human history when it feels like everyone is so quick to rush to conclusions about everyone else, quick to write people off, quick to draw really tight lines around who's in and who's out, who's good, who's bad, who's right, who's wrong. At a time in history when nearly everybody seems to be treating people that way, Ted Lasso goes through his life being curious, not judgmental. What a different and refreshing approach to life, right? I bring all of that up because we've been in this series for several weeks now about mission, about demonstrating and articulating the good news of Jesus to those who don't yet know about it. And today, as weird as it might sound, I, I thought we could talk a bit about how we might capture just a little bit of Ted Lasso's playbook. Get it? Playbook? Because he's a coach. Yeah, it's a playbook. That was a dad joke. I'm sorry. But I want to talk about how we might capture just a little bit of Ted Lasso in how we approach mission. Now, really, it's not original to Ted Lasso. That's just a cultural touch point, right? We're going to see here in just a little bit how it's actually from the Bible. It's actually from Jesus himself. But in a world where everyone expects people, and I think especially Christians, of being judgmental towards them, what might it look like to instead be curious about people. Now, at a societal level, here's why I think an approach like that one might be needed. Whether you and I realize it or not, the landscape around us has shifted in the past 10 to 20 years. It it used to be that the vast majority of people in our society had some sort of framework for religion, for spiritual reality. So most people out there, Christian or not, once believed that there was some sort of transcendent entity out there. And they believed that that entity could offer us a framework for what is right and what's wrong, for, for how to live, for how to find purpose in our life. A vast majority of people believed that something like that was out there. Now, they might have all disagreed on who or what that entity was, or how to connect with it, or how to tap into it, But still, the vast majority of people used to believe that that existed out there somewhere, that we could at least find it or search for it, which meant that previously talking to people about Jesus in many ways was just about helping them connect the dots, right? They wanted something resembling the Christian faith to be true. We just maybe had to help them answer a few key questions in order to arrive there. So maybe they had questions about the age of the earth or or about the exclusive claims of Christianity or about the problem of evil in the world or, or something else entirely. But generally speaking, it used to be that if you could give people satisfactory answers to those types of questions that they had, you at least stood a decent chance at bringing them into a relationship with Jesus. Put simply, a lot of evangelism used to be about answering people's questions. But increasingly, that's not really how it works anymore. You might still come across people in that place that think like that, but more and more, that's not really the dynamic at all. You and I, as followers of Jesus, I hope we understand this, 
we are not the gurus anymore. More and more, if you were to go up to the average non-Christian that you know and say, hello, I'm a Christian, I'm here to answer all the questions that you have about Christianity, they're going to look back at you with a blank stare. They don't have those questions. Most people don't have those questions anymore, or if they do have those questions, those questions are going to be a little more confrontational and antagonistic in their tone, not genuinely curious questions. Increasingly in our society, people are not wanting the message of Jesus to be true and just waiting on someone to come along and answer their questions about it. They might not even feel a need for it to be true in the first place. Most people out there right now already have a set of answers to life's biggest questions. Questions like, why are we here? What is our purpose? What is life all about? What does it mean to be a good person? Even the people out there who wouldn't know how to articulate their answers specifically to those questions, they at least operate with functional answers to those questions right? They, they've already decided what life is all about and how to work towards the best version of that life that they can. And for the most part, people seem to be pretty satisfied with their answers. They're pretty content with their existing worldviews as they stand. Which means that if we are going to be effective as followers of Jesus in reaching people with the gospel today, we will have to rethink our methods a little bit. We're going to have to reevaluate and re-engineer the methods that have worked for the past 10, 20, 50 years in our society. Now, we don't need to rethink what we're doing, but we may need to rethink how we go about it. We may need to rethink the methods that we are accustomed to using. You see, increasingly evangelism, telling other people about Jesus, is not just about answering people's questions. More and more, it's about questioning people's answers. We will have to learn to ask enough questions to discern what people's worldviews even are and then look for inroads there to the good news of Jesus. Put simply, part of evangelism in the 21st century looks like getting really, really good at asking questions. Or to use Ted Lasso's language, learning to be curious about people. But like I mentioned a moment ago, this isn't some sort of new innovative evangelism method that I, or much less Ted Lasso, am coming up with. This is actually what Jesus himself did. Jesus was an absolute expert at asking questions, which I know might feel a little bit odd to us because we usually think of Jesus as the guy with all the answers, right? Which he is. But if you just read through the Gospels beginning to end, you might be surprised at how often Jesus asked people questions when we probably would have expected him to give people answers. So I want to walk you through just one of those instances from the New Testament this morning. And I want to see what we can learn along the way from Jesus' approach to people. So let's take a look at our passage, Luke chapter 10. We'll start in verse 25 together. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, real quickly here, if this were an exercise in an evangelism seminar, this is what we would call a t-ball question, right? 
what must I do to obtain eternal life? I mean, just imagine that you've been building a relationship with a coworker or a classmate or a friend for years, and you've been praying like crazy for God to give you an opportunity to talk to them about Jesus, and then imagine they sit down in front of you one day, and they go, hey, excuse me, thanks for the coffee you got me this morning. Also, what can I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, this would be the ideal scenario, right? This is what you're waiting for. This is your opportunity to say, okay, well, here's what sin is, and here's how sin separates you from God, and here's what you need to acknowledge about all of that, and here's the prayer you pray, and ta-da, you're a Christian. You're welcome, right? This is what I think a lot of us would be inclined to do in a scenario like this, if someone approached us with a question like this. But as we're going to see in a second, that's not really how Jesus responds to the question at all. And that's because, catch this, Jesus realizes that this question is not actually a question. As it says in the passage, this guy is simply trying to test Jesus. He's not genuinely wanting an answer. He's wanting Jesus to agree with the answer he already has. In other words, his question is really just an answer in disguise. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, even in the rare occasions today that you do get a question from someone about Christianity or about faith or about Jesus, at least the majority of the time, it's probably not actually a question. It's an answer in disguise. If a person comes up to you, for instance, and asks, uh, why are Christians so strict in their thinking and teaching about sex and sexuality? That's not actually a question. They're not actually wondering how you would explain that. It's phrased like a question, but it's not one. What they're actually saying is, hey, sexuality shouldn't be thought about like that. And I'm really bothered as to why Christians think about it like that. That's an answer. They've already made up their mind. Which means that if you answer a question like that, just straight up, as if it were a genuine question, it won't get you much of anywhere with the other person. And you may miss an opportunity to further the discussion with them in helpful ways. So Jesus realizes all of that in this story, which is why he answers this guy's question not with a rehearsed plan of salvation that he lays out for the guy or with a well-thought-out defense of the Christian faith. He answers this guy with a question of his own. Continue with me in verse 26. Jesus responds to the man, what is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? So what Jesus is trying to do with this question essentially is figure out what this guy's worldview is. He wants to know how this guy views the world around him, which for him is how he reads the Old Testament law. How does he think about morality and ethics? What does he think a good person is exactly? How does he see the world? What does he think the answers to life's biggest questions are? That is what Jesus is trying to figure out with these questions. Jesus is not about to answer a question about eternal life without some understanding of where the other person is coming from. Jesus knows that most people's questions are answers in disguise, and so he asks the guy to unpack his answers a little bit more, which the guy does, verse 27. He answered... Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. 
So he basically sums up his understanding of the Old Testament law. Now, we know from elsewhere in the Bible that this is precisely how Jesus himself often sums up the Old Testament law. So Jesus says, verse 28, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus basically just says, what do you need me for? Sounds like you've already got your answer all figured out. Do that and you'll find the life that you're looking for. Now, this is fascinating to me. This guy has a question for Jesus about eternal life, arguably the most important question in the universe, right? He has a question for Jesus about eternal life, and Jesus is about to send him away with no answer other than the answer he already had. I'm not just saying this to be cheeky. I genuinely think if Jesus were to take an evangelism class in the 21st century, I think most of us would flunk him. Like, we'd be like, hey, man, I don't know if this evangelism thing is for you. I don't know if you're cut out for it. That was a key opportunity, and you just completely missed it. Like, this feels like a missed opportunity to some of us. But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing because the guy has a follow-up question for him. Verse 29 but he wanted to justify himself. Remember how we said that most questions are just answers in disguise? That's exactly what's happening here. This guy didn't actually want an answer from Jesus. He wanted Jesus to validate his answer. So he asked Jesus another question, and who is my neighbor? Follow-up question, who is my neighbor? Jesus. Now, If you've read this passage before, and most of us just heard it read a moment ago, you'll know that Jesus actually responds to this question with a parable. It's the parable of the so-called Good Samaritan. Most of us have heard some version of it at some point in our life. So I'm not going to read through it all in detail. Most of us are probably already familiar with the basic details of the story. What's interesting to me is that at the end of the story that Jesus tells in this response, Jesus still doesn't give an answer. He actually asks another question. Jesus is relentless with asking questions. Skip down with me to verse 36. Which of these three, the three people in the story, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Jesus still is not going to give the guy a straightforward answer to his question. He's going to make the guy answer his own question. And this is what Jesus did constantly in his ministry. He asked questions. He loved answering people's questions with more questions of his own. He loved responding to people's answers and to people's worldviews with more questions of his own. If you get the time, I would just encourage you, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and make note of how often Jesus does this with people. One person I read counted up 223 questions that Jesus asks in the Gospels from beginning to end. He said that best he can tell, Jesus actually only answers a question directly four times in the Gospels. Jesus loved asking questions. So why? Why did Jesus love asking questions so much? Why does he respond so often in this way to people? Why not just give people straight answers? Well, I think at least part of it has to do with who and what Jesus was. So Jesus was a first century rabbi, and this is how rabbis often taught. 
They didn't sit around and wait for you to ask them questions. They usually asked their students questions as a way to teach. They weren't interested in giving you as a student answers to just regurgitate back to them. They were interested in helping you as a student think for yourself and to think well. But I think there are at least a few more reasons that Jesus did this, the reason that Jesus asked questions so often. And, and feel free to jot these down if you find them helpful. We'll try to move through them pretty quickly. A few reasons that I think Jesus asked questions. First, I think Jesus asked questions because he loved people. Because he loved people. There's another story in the Gospels about a, a, quote, rich young ruler who comes to Jesus with a question. It's actually the exact same question as the guy in the story that we just read. He says, good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Jesus, again, asks him a question in return. And then a few verses later, before Jesus responds again, it says that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler and, quote, loved him. Loved him. Jesus interacted with people the way he did because Jesus deeply loved and cared for people. To put it a slightly different way, I think Jesus cared more about the person asking the question than he did about the question being asked. Jesus knew that behind every question or answer or worldview or belief that people have, there is a real person with a real story. A person with experiences and hurts and scars and wounds. A person with plausibility structures in their mind that prevent and discourage them from accepting even the most convincing of answers. Jesus knew that often what people need is not actually a well-rehearsed theological treatise of an answer to their questions. Often what they most need is to be seen and heard and understood by another person. And I think that's something that asking questions can really help us accomplish in our relationships with people. Second, I think Jesus asked questions because questions help people think critically about their beliefs. I think Jesus asked questions because questions help people think critically. So Jesus did this constantly in his interactions with the Pharisees in the Bible. They would come to him and ask if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath, to which he would ask them, okay, well, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, would you rescue it out? He's challenging them to think critically about their own interpretation of the law. They would come to him and ask a question like, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he would say, well, whose image is on the coin?" He would challenge them to think about things thoroughly, to think critically about their own belief systems. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's using questions as a way of encouraging the people around him to think critically about their own beliefs. He is, in essence, questioning people's answers. And I'll just tell you, if you do this with people in your life out of a place of friendship and with the appropriate gentleness and genuineness, it can be really helpful in getting to know people and eventually getting them to think critically about their own existing beliefs. Answering questions is how we all learn to fine-tune our beliefs about the world. That's often what Jesus was trying to help people do with his questions. He was challenging them to think critically about their predetermined answers they had about the world. And then lastly... I think Jesus asked questions because he trusted the Father to do what he couldn't. 
because he trusted the Father to do what he couldn't. So we're all familiar with the line from Jesus. We've mentioned it so far in this series where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We've heard that line. And that's true, but Jesus also says at one point in the Gospel of John, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now think about that for a second. Jesus, the king of the world, acknowledges that he is not the decisive factor in whether or not people come to know him. And neither are his answers to their questions. The decisive factor is actually whether or not the Father draws them in. And listen, if Jesus himself was not the decisive factor in all of that, then certainly we aren't either, right? And certainly our ability to answer people's questions is not the decisive factor. What a person needs from you as a follower of Jesus isn't ultimately a few intellectually satisfying answers to their questions. Those can be useful and helpful at times for sure, but they aren't the determining factor in whether or not that person comes to faith in Jesus. The determining factor is whether or not the Father draws them. So I just want you to breathe that in for a second as you think about your interactions with non-Christians in your life. Let that settle in. If Jesus did not think his answers were sufficient to bring people into relationship with him, he surely doesn't expect your answers to be either. That's not your job. Your job is to befriend people, to ask questions, and to give answers when you're given the opportunity to and to trust the Father to do what only he can do. What a relief that should be for us as we seek to tell people about Jesus. It is not our job to be the decisive factor in whether or not people make the decision. It's the Father's. So, those are just a few reasons that Jesus asked questions and probably some good reasons that we should ask questions as well. Hopefully those give us some things to dwell on this week as we wrestle with all of this in our life group settings and all of that. But before we're done today, I, I did want to just wrap up by trying to get really, really practical for just a few moments. What types of questions are we talking about asking? in these scenarios. When we're building a relationship with somebody that doesn't know Jesus and, and we're wanting to use questions as a way to get to know them, what types of questions are we talking about exactly? Now, I'll start off by saying there's virtually no limit to the questions that we can ask to do this, but I, I wanted to at least give you kind of some categories and some specific questions just to get you started in all of this. I want to kind of put some tools in your toolbox, so to speak, and then trust the Holy Spirit in you to discern when to ask which ones and all of that. So some, conver some questions that we ask are what we might call conversational questions. Conversational questions. So they are simply ways to further the conversation, extend the discussion, and discover more about what the other person just said or just asked. So these are questions that sound like, can you tell me more about that? Or, hey, could you say that in a different way? I'm, I'm trying to follow what you're saying. Could you say that in a different way? Uh, will you elaborate on that a little bit more? I, I would love to hear more on that. Or, oh, I've heard people say that before. Can you tell me more about what you just said? What does that mean exactly? 
uh, I once heard somebody say that uh, you can actually do this without even saying a word. So they said, like, if, if you're out at coffee or you're eating a meal with somebody, sometimes after they say something, if you want them to go into more detail, you can just pause and take another sip of your drink. It's like a nonverbal cue. It makes them feel awkward enough that they'll keep talking and they'll say more about the thing that they just mentioned. So maybe even just do that. Just take another sip. Just go, hmm, and take another sip of your coffee or something like that. Like, however you want to do it, ask one of these questions, do that, whatever it looks like, but just look for ways to keep the conversation going. People generally have lots of things to say about what they believe and what they think and how they think about the world. So one of the best things you can do in conversations with other people is just show them that you're interested in hearing more about what they just said. Who knows, you might actually learn something new from them, right? Or even if you don't, bare minimum, you will learn, about, you will learn more about that person, which you probably wouldn't have if you would have just immediately responded with your perspective on it. Which leads to the next category, which is what we might call personal questions. Personal questions. So these questions are designed not just to get, not just to know more about what the other person just said, but actually to get to know more about them as a person, as a human being. These would be questions like, wow, you sound really passionate about that. How did that come about for you? How did you become passionate in what you just said? Uh, I can tell this issue is really personal for you. Would you be willing to share more with me about that? Uh, what makes you say that exactly? How did you arrive at that conclusion? Or even something like, hey, could I hear more about that part of your story sometime, if you're cool with it? So these questions are just ways of communicating to the other person that you care about them as a person. You care as much about them as you do about formulating a perfect answer to their question or a response to their worldview. You're helping to remind them and I would add, remind yourself that both of you are human beings with stories and hurts and baggage and that you have no interest in just buffering those personal parts out of you from the conversation. Personal questions can be really helpful in getting to know the other person and learning how you might most helpfully tell them about Jesus when you're given the opportunity. And then lastly, one more category, there are philosophical questions that you can ask. Philosophical questions. So questions like, uh, do you think there's such a thing as a good person? And if so, what makes a person a good person? Questions like, do you believe that there are evil people in the world? And what do you think should be done about that? How should we deal with the evil in the world? Uh, questions like, in your opinion, what is the problem with our world? Most people right now would agree there are problems with our world. Sometimes you can learn a lot by just asking a person to articulate, hey, what do you think the problems are with our world? And then in response to a question like that, maybe something like, hey, what do you think would solve the problems with our world? You can learn a lot about how somebody thinks and the perspective they're coming from by asking questions like that. So all these are just questions to, to help Wrap your mind around the other person's worldview. Where are they coming from? How do they think about reality and truth and God and the universe and all of that, purpose, all of that? And over time, 
I think these questions can actually help the other person think critically about those beliefs. So we've mentioned this before in teachings, but a person can really only cast doubt on the claims of Christianity if they are standing on beliefs of their own. Whether they realize they're standing on them or not is a different story, but you can only doubt the claims of one worldview if you're standing on the claims of another. So it follows that even those beliefs that they're standing on should be subject to questions. Not aggressive questions, not antagonistic questions, but questions. Philosophical questions are ways to do just that, to to gently and compassionately invite the person to think critically about their own worldviews. And and probably there are plenty of other categories, conversational questions, personal questions, philosophical questions. Like I said, I trust the Holy Spirit and you guys to think of even more questions than the ones we just mentioned. I just wanted to give you some examples to get you started. But as we conclude, I I want to just share one example of how this can go. So several years back, uh, I knew a guy, hung out with him a good bit, a guy that we'll, we'll just call David for purposes of this. I don't know if he'll like listen to this teaching online one day, so I wouldn't want him to feel awkward, but we'll call him David. He and I had known each other for probably a year or two. Uh, we had had all sorts of conversations about different things. Most of them were fairly surface level conversations. But one day when we were hanging out, we were at a Waffle House, oddly enough, which I think is where all great conversations happen, right? Um, We were at a Waffle House, um, scattered and covered, just if you're wondering. It's the best way to eat hash browns. Um, I'm not taking questions on that, by the way. Um, We were sitting at Waffle House, and somehow this particular morning, uh, the topic of conversation started sort of veering on its own towards the actions of certain Christians in the public square. So in general, towards some dumb and unchristlike actions of Christians in the public square. We don't need to go into all of that, but that's what he started talking about. Something he had seen on the news where Christians were not being very Christ-like publicly. And, and he said something to the effect of, he was just trying to change subjects, I think, but he said something to the effect of, but that's just who Christians are, I guess. Now, Everything in me in that moment wanted to go, no, it's not. That's not who Christians are. Christians shouldn't act like that, and that type of behavior is not who Christians are at all. It's the exact opposite of who we are. That's what I wanted to say in the moment. But instead, I decided to just ask him one of those conversational questions. I just said, hey, what do you mean by that? When you say that's just who Christians are, what what exactly do you mean by that? To which David replied, well, don't Christians think that anyone who doesn't believe what they believe are bound for hell? Because if so, it makes sense that they would be really mean and ugly to people of other belief systems. Now, again, I wanted to argue with him there, right? Because that doesn't actually make sense to me logically, that that behavior would follow that belief. And arguably in the Bible, it doesn't lead to that either. And so I wanted to just argue with him. But instead, I asked another question. I said, David, do you believe there's such thing as hell? Is there anything resembling hell that actually exists? Philosophical question. He said, no. So I said, okay, what do you think happens to evil people then? Another philosophical question, David said, well, 
I guess I just believe that they get caught and brought to justice. To which I said, sure, some of them do. But what about the other ones? What about people that don't get caught? What about people that do evil things and don't get caught? What about the people who do evil things that aren't illegal per se? They're just harmful and hurtful to other people. I actually asked him specifically about his dad. So I I knew bits and pieces of David's story. I knew from how he talked about his dad that his dad was just a horrible person. And I knew that from asking personal questions every once in a while. To my knowledge, his dad didn't do anything illegal. He was just a very selfish person, very angry, very destructive in his patterns of behavior towards others. So I asked David, I said, what happens to people like that? Another philosophical question of sorts. David stopped. He thought about that for a second. And then he said, well, I guess I just believe that it all shakes out in the end. What goes around comes around, is the phrase he used. But in that moment, as David said that, I I could just see in his eyes that he wasn't satisfied with the answer. It was one of those things that like, he said it as if he wanted it to be true, but he didn't actually believe that it was true, that it all shakes out in the end. So in that moment, I just spoke up gently and I didn't speak up with a full gospel presentation or I didn't draw on a Waffle House napkin like a diagram about how he could be saved or, or any of that. Maybe I could have, but I didn't. I just responded by saying, well, man, I, I think you and I probably have more in common than you might think. I said, I, I as a Christian also believe that it all shakes out in the end. The, the main difference I think with me is that I believe there is a person in charge of making sure that it all shakes out in the end. I think that there is a person who can be trusted to make sure that justice is served ultimately one day. And that that person has proven his trustworthiness by going to the cross on our behalf as a victim of injustice in the world. And so I, I just said that. I, as I said, I, I can trust that because I know that, that one day, one, one way or another, God will make sure that what is right is what is done. And I said, because of that, I don't, I don't really feel like I have to hang on to bitterness or resentment in my heart because I trust that one day, one way or another, God will settle it. And we sort of just sat there for a second. It was awkward. <laughs> like, real awkward. He thought about it for a moment or two, and then the topic of conversation changed to something else eventually. And I, I wish I could stand up here and tell you that he responded to what I said with like, well, what do you mean one way or another? And then I like unpacked the cross and hell and justice and everything and opened up the Bible. Like, I wish I could tell you that that happened. That would have been awesome. I, I prayed as long as we were friends, as long as we hung out over the next year or so, that he would ask that question one day, but he never did. David now lives hundreds of miles away. I probably haven't spoken to him in several years. And to my knowledge, David still hasn't decided to follow Jesus. But I find myself praying every so often that something about that conversation made David at least a little less sure of his answers about life. That that maybe that piqued his curiosity about a different way to view the world and to view life. 
And that maybe one day that uncertainty will lead him to investigate whether or not that are, there are better answers out there. And my prayer is that God puts someone or something in his life or maybe just prompts him to reach out to me or whatever the case may be that leads him to consider the way of Jesus. And who knows, maybe one day I'll be going through the town David lives and I'll get together with him and ask him about that conversation. Who knows? But I think this, is all, this all comes back to what we said earlier, right? That I've got to trust the Father to do what I can't do. But all of that said, I, I want you to just see how that conversation went very differently than it would have if I would have just answered him with, well, yes, I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that anyone who doesn't believe that goes to hell. That is what I believe. If I would have done that, the conversation would have been over, most likely. Now, I ended up with virtually the same conclusion, right? I, I landed with some version of that. But in the meantime, I asked questions. And in the meantime, we, we potentially turned an obstacle that he had to the claims of Jesus into a bridge of sorts to the claims of Jesus. And it happened simply because I was able to ask some questions about where he was coming from. That's what we're going for. Now, before we wrap up, and thank you guys for being patient. I know we've gone long today. Before we wrap up, I do want to be very clear about one thing. Hopefully we realize that the goal is not just to ask questions forever, right? Like you can't share the good news of Jesus with people if all you ever do is ask questions. At some point, you have to say things to them that maybe they don't agree with. But at the same time, I don't know that many of us lean towards asking too many questions in those conversations. I think we probably lean towards not asking enough of them. In the book of Proverbs, it says, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. It's a bit of a life verse for me because I talk a lot. It says, he who gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. I wonder if a lot of Christians try to tell people the gospel before we've actually heard where they're coming from. And I wonder if we took the time to ask some questions about where they're coming from. I wonder if the moment where we actually explain to them the good news of Jesus might actually go over a little bit better than if we just instantly respond with it, assuming that we know where they're coming from. He who gives an answer before he hears it is his folly and shame. And I wonder if by asking more questions, we could learn more about the other person and what they believe so that when the opportunity comes to talk to them about Jesus, we can do it more helpfully and more insightfully and more compassionately than we would have done otherwise. That's the goal with all of this. That's what we're shooting for. So each week during this series, uh, we're participating in a practice to help us grow in demonstrating and articulating the gospel. It's all available in our practice guide that you can grab a copy of on the way out in the lobby for free. You can also go to citychurchnox.com, get a digital version of it. But this week's practice, the one for this week, is just called Gospel Bridges and Obstacles. Gospel bridges and obstacles. So the way that it works is that you think through specific people in your life that don't follow Jesus yet. 
And you start with just your best understanding of that person's life purpose statement. So in other words, how would that person summarize what life is all about? What would they say life is about for them? What would they say the purpose of life is? These are things that you're largely going to pick up from just observation of their life as well as asking really good questions. And then, based on whatever you would say their life purpose statement is, I want us to just think about ways that the gospel runs parallel to those beliefs and then also what ways it runs contrary to it. Gospel bridges and gospel obstacles. And, and maybe as you work through this this week, maybe the biggest thing that you take away from this practice is that you just need to ask a lot more questions with the people that you've been building relationships with to get to know what their life purpose statement is. And if that's all you take away from it, that's fantastic. That is a fantastic place to start. But the goal is that the Spirit uses all of this to help us ask good questions and for us to look in the responses to those questions to look for inroads and opportunities to speak the good news of Jesus into people's life. That's what we'll work through this week. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you that he took the time to question people's answers. And God, we want to ask that uh, you would lead us to doing the same. That maybe people in our life that we've known for a little bit, that we know don't follow Jesus, um, God, if we haven't already, would, would you just prompt us to ask really good questions to them? Questions about what they believe and why they believe it and what parts of their story contributed to them believing that. God, I, I want to ask that you would make us as followers of Jesus people that set this incredible example of caring deeply for people just as Jesus did. God, that even when people respond negatively or antagonistically to, uh, to the idea that we're followers of Jesus, God, even if they're frustrated by that, angered by that, whatever, God, I want to pray that our response to them would be kindness, would be a genuine interest in their life, would be compassion for them and their story and what they've been through and how they've arrived where they've arrived. God, that even if people don't agree with what we do or what we believe, they would see in us a person that cares deeply for them in ways that they've never experienced before. And so, God, would you just grant us the wisdom that comes from being filled by the Spirit to ask good questions, to know when to speak and when to listen, 
to know when to challenge and, and when to just ask the other person to elaborate further. God, I, I pray that you would give us the ability to discern when we've put in the relational equity that has earned us the right to challenge another person's worldview and that we wouldn't look for ways to debate them before that happens. God, I want to pray that, um, that the evangelistic encounters that you lead us into would come from a place most often of relationship and care for the other person and a genuine curiosity about their life in such a way that is consistent with the posture of Jesus we see throughout the Gospels. So God, would you forgive us when we've, uh, when we've jumped the gun on that, when we've um, been too aggressive or unhelpful in the way that we've communicated the Gospel to people. And God, would you give us opportunities to do it well? And God, we ask that you would use all of this for your glory, for our good, and for the good of the world that you came to save. We ask this in your name. Amen.